Welcome to Bothering the Band. I'm a little nervous for this episode for some reason. It is with Grammy-winning music historian Dom Flemons, who did Bothering the Band when it was just a little old written article. He was one of the first, and now we're bothering him again. I was listening to him all day. I love it. Dom. Oh, 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 oh hey, hey. <laughs> hey, hey, man. How's it going? Um, welcome going to Bothering good. the Band. My name is Ryan. This is Abby, the producer. Um, hey, thank you so much for doing this again. We were just uh, doing your your intro and I was like, he he was nice enough to do Bothering the Band it was a little old uh, written article. And now you're back. Thank you so much for being here, man. Of course, it's a pleasure, Ryan. Thank you so much for having me back. You know, it's a pl- it's really a pleasure, and I'm glad that you've expanded the program into this new format. I know I couldn't have done it without Abby here. Um, you know, she she's the brains behind it. I just uh, write the silly questions, but she does all the heavy lifting. So, uh, yeah, man. Um, start off. How are you, and where are you? Well, I'm I'm generally doing very well. I'm currently. Uh, just outside of Chicago, I, I moved out to uh, Chicago, I believe since the last time. I think I was in D.C. still mm-hmm. when, when we last spoke. And as a result of the pandemic, I decided to move my family nearer to my wife's family in the Chicago area. So it's a, a couple of different steps, but that's where I am now. Oh, that's cool. I love Chicago. I was there twice last summer, uh, one for the Pitchfork Festival in Chicago in the summer. Even the suburb, my mom was born in Rockford, and so I have a a, oh, yeah. a tie to that area, and the people are so nice, and good music, good food, and good comedy. Yeah, yeah, so I've, I've been enjoying it out here. It's been a great time, you know, so yeah, it's, uh, yeah, so that's that's been the, the new thing with me in terms of uh, living, you know. <laughs> uh, do you like it? Do you miss D.C. Do you, at all? Uh, well, um, I miss D.C. a little bit. Um, but at the same time, I was I was going there for work, and I was doing a lot of work with the Smithsonian at that mm-hmm. particular time. And so, uh, part of the 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 prompting to move was that the Smithsonian had uh, closed down for the for the foreseeable future at that point. So, um, on top of uh, shows as well as um, uh, educational programming, I was doing a lot of private school programming and Alzheimer's and dementia patient programming. So all of that went down in one sort of one swoop so it was sort of like a multi-faceted uh shutdown in terms of my um my usual performing that was outside of my gigging that i do when i'm i'm traveling so yeah, yeah it kind of forced our hand to move um so i miss dc in one way but in another way um moving up to the midwest it's kind of away from the rat race a little bit and my my little daughter's four years old now so she was about oh, wow. two and a half when we moved so um yeah so it's 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 been good for the family as well oh that's that's wonderful i bet you don't miss uh, and i'm speaking from my own experience those roundabouts in dc (laughs) i just would get stuck in them and i can't get out of them i've driven there a few times yeah i was out in maryland over uh, in silver spring which is just north of town so we had a big roundabout in the place that we lived so it was uh always fighting that traffic you know 
Yeah. Uh, wow. Small world. I know, I know Silver Spring too. I, I, uh, I, a good friend of mine lived in Bethesda, which is oh, like yeah. the town over. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Small, small world. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, what music have you listened to today? Oh, today. Oh boy. It's a lot. Um, first it started with some banjo music. Um, one called Pickin' and Blowin' from uh, a musician by the name of George Pegram. Uh, I also followed that with um, a bit of the soundtrack to Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. I, I guessed on that album, uh, and uh, Branford Marcellus uh, did the scoring as well as the recreation of Ma Rainey's early hits, and so I was listening back to that one a little bit. Um, let's see... I, I got nostalgic for Buena Vista Social Club, and I've been a big fan of that album for years. So they just reissued it in a 25th anniversary edition. So, again, I I scra- scraped some money together to get that bonus edition with the extra disc. Um, Louisville Jug Band uh, with Clifford Hayes. Let me see what else yeah. have I been into today. The Redheaded Stranger by Willie Nelson. Uh, I'm trying to think of what else there was. There was a uh, my my little girl really likes um, a beautiful album from Charles Mingus. Mingus plays piano, so it's a whole album of Charles Mingus playing beautiful little spontaneous compositions. And that's a that's a little bit of today, but um, there were a few more, but I can't think of them right off the bat. Oh man, I have chills right now. I I love it. I I we were just talking about before this. Uh, we we started this whole thing because we're just such music junkies like that. I'm, I'm not a musician at all, but I just, it's on all the time. Uh, it never stops. And so, I mean, we're, what we do pales in conspira- uh, comparison to what, you know, you're, you're just like, oh, a little bit of music and then listed <laughs> like very eclectic, very obscure, but also such great music. Um, it's cool that you mentioned what your, your daughter gravitates towards. I think that's fascinating. I have a, I have a seven-year-old daughter and when she was a kid or she's still a kid, but when she was a baby, she, uh, it was reggae music. Something with the cadence of reggae music was what she gravitated towards. I don't get it. I didn't question it. I just put on like toots and the Maytals or something like that for her all the time. Oh, nice. Yeah. So very cool, man. All right. What's our next silly question? Uh, what's one song or band that reminds you of your youth? Speaking of childhood. Oh, wow. Let me think. If I think of my early days of of starting guitar, one band is actually uh, the group Sublime from the from the early 90s and particularly Bradley Noel and his uh, Bradley Noel and friends. They put out a small record of um, acoustic recordings of demo recordings of Sublime, as well as some of the uh, home recordings that Bradley Noel had around. That takes me back to my youth because that was, um, I guess my older brother got into the album 40 Ounces to Freedom and then I ended up getting it. And it was actually the first LP I owned. Um, they had put out a special edition double LP at one point of 40 Ounces to Freedom. And even though I didn't have a record player at that time, I bought the record and I just held on to it for a couple years until... um. Because at the time, this was before there was a resurgence in vinyl, so yeah. I had to cobble together my own uh, turntable. You know, this is like 1997, 1998, you know, not being a DJ. Uh, there weren't many people to tell me how to put together a turntable, so I, I had to wait a couple years till I finally played that 40 ounce to freedom. But a lot of those acoustic recordings really moved me. 
Um, and then also the, I found a bootleg of Bradley Knoll at the Firecracker Lounge, which I which I still have and I cherish that CD. A little bootleg of a live acoustic set. Oh wow! I was gonna ask uh, just because you said Sublime Abbey, what's what's a one band or song that makes you think of your youth? I bet you it's similar. <laughs> I mean, probably it would be in that vein. Yeah, I was gonna say mine's probably like Operation Ivy, some sort of west coast ska punk thing mm-hmm. yeah yeah this right. it was like a time before i got into old-timey stuff and i really got into most of the, a lot of the skunk records artists as well you know uh, oh yeah cool slightly stupid and uh, a lot of those different groups which uh, some are still around but um it was an interesting time really exciting moment uh, a lot of blending together of styles yeah um so just a super dumb question. Uh, where did you, where did you get your hat? <laughs> this hat here. Well, it's funny you mention it. I wear this hat because I'm so proud of where I, I got it. I, I picked this hat up in New South Wales, Australia, when I took my first trip out there in 2013. And uh, this is a hat called a pastoral and the brand is Akubra. And a Kubra is the, the Australian version of the Stetson hat. So it's revered in the same type of way that we revere Stetson cowboy hats here in the United States. And so uh, for years I had performed uh, wearing a pork pie hat, which has a smaller brim than this one. And when I saw this one at the store, I, I just, one, I wanted to get an Australian hat. But once I saw this and it had a, a bigger brim, but it had the crown just like a pork pie hat, I knew that I would, I would need to get this hat. And I knew it would also be a hard hat to replicate because it doesn't look quite like a regular cowboy hat. Um, and so that was a, that's, that's where I ended up getting my hat was uh, out in Australia. Uh, actually, at a, I went to go to a mountain range called the Three Sisters over in Katoomba, you know, uh, and that was, that was where I picked this hat up. Oh, very cool. I half expect you to be like, I'm not telling so I, we wouldn't have been offended either by it. We would have respected the hat game. Uh, it's so iconic. I, I can't even picture you without it now. Um, I appreciate it. So where do you keep your Grammy? I keep my Grammy actually on the mantle and in, in oh, the living cool. room, you know, always as sort of a, a reminder of uh, the great places I was able to go. I mean, you know, that the Grammy it was the first time I had had attended the ceremony, so when I won years back with Genuine Negro Jig, it was, I mean, it, it felt like a great confirmation of the work I had been doing up to that point. Because, of course, you know, a lot of people, they, it takes them years to win their very first Grammy, even though they might be nominated many different times, and, you know, for one reason or another, they don't walk home with the gold. So, um, the fact that I was able to get it the first time I had been there uh, two times uh, since then as a nominee, but it felt really beautiful to be able to get it the, uh, the first time around. So I think about that. And I also think about a beautiful moment um, backstage after um, winning the award. Uh, they were, um, they had a little photo booth where everyone took uh, formal portraits with a, with a great photographer out there in uh, Los Angeles. And um, a fellow tapped me on the shoulder as I was in line. And I turned around and it was Herbie Hancock. And Herbie Hancock had seen the bones I was holding in my hands. Like when I came up, I had my bones in my coat pocket and I came out and I rattled them a little bit as I went to the stage. And so backstage, 
Herbie Hancock is asking me about the bones. He tells me this beautiful story about playing the spoons growing up in South Carolina, and I give him a bones lesson right there while we're waiting for the photo. So it's um, when I look at that Grammy, I think about those moments because those were kind of uh, personal highlights that happened within the ceremony beside just the winning of it and going and everything there was just making a personal connection with herbie hancock you gotta be that <laughs> that's incredible that's incredible oh my goodness um i was gonna say did you have it did you have what you were gonna say prepared or you didn't want to jinx it or oh well i did not have what i wanted to say prepared it's it's very it's funny when you see it on tv after a certain point, you think to yourself, well, why didn't they think about what they were going to say beforehand? And uh, thankfully, I was there in a group setting, so I wasn't the only one there. But nobody had prepared anything that they were going to say at that point. Um, I'm, I made, a, uh, I, I made a, a, a comment mentioning that string bands had not been recognized in the broader music industry. And so this, um, the award that we were getting for traditional folk that year represented a, a new movement in the uh, broader music community within the Recording Academy, acknowledging string bands and secular uh, African-American music that's not just the blues. And so mm -hmm. I made a comment about that, and and everybody else said sort of what they felt from the heart. But uh, when you're up there on that stage, you you would you you would think on on TV, you'd say, well, why do they always say, boy, I don't even know what to say. But when you're up there, all of a sudden you realize why everybody says that, because you're standing there, and the entire ceremony, which is, uh, I mean, the the cream of the crop of the, the industry, is standing there looking at you all of a sudden. If you don't have it written out, uh, <laughs> you're kind of like, oh, boy, I, uh, I, I didn't know this was going to happen. Uh, what, what do I say? You know, and, but uh, at the same time, they've got 30 seconds before they run the music on you. So <laughs> you also got to be quick. Yeah. So it's it, it it's a it's a very uh, interesting experience. I I can't wait for the day that I might have a chance to do it again. Oh man, we're rooting for you. I just made a note. Find try to find that video on YouTube. Yeah, yeah, yeah gonna... I, I'm not sure where the acceptance speech is. Uh, I have seen a, a video from the uh, nomination uh, party where I'm talking with one of the interviewers, and he actually asked me about the bones as well, and I gave him a small demonstration. Uh, in the interview, but I'm not sure where that that acceptance speech might be. Yeah, let me know one day. I'd I'd love to see it back one at some time. Yeah, if we can do some digging, um, and by we I mean I mean Abby's gonna have to dig for it. She's better at. It. <laughs> um, so for the folks at home, uh, can tell us tell them what the bones are. Well, the, the bones, or I call them the rhythm bones to kind of mm -hmm. give just a little bit more definition. Uh, the rhythm bones are uh, actually, uh, when I'm playing them, I have a, a pair of short rib bones, uh, beef rib bones from a cow, and then I have a set of shin bones from a cow as well. And they basically look like castanets if you've ever seen flamenco dancing. So when mm -hmm. you hear them, they have a clickety-clack-clack-clack-clack sort of sound when, when you play them. Um, so you're holding these two bones that are sort of independently sitting between the fingers. So I hold them between my pointer, middle, and ring fingers. And when I hold my, uh, hold my middle finger around one, one of them is, is holding uh, very still in my palm, and then the other one is sort of hanging loose. And when I move my wrist 
on the ballast of my wrist going back and forth, almost like uh, when you're turning a doorknob, you can get a click. So you get a click in one direction and a click in the other direction with the wrist. And so when you hold it properly, it'll do the do that sort of sound. But when you move the whole arm and create um, subtle movements, uh, you can follow the rhythm almost like conducting an orchestra and you can get click sounds to follow that body motion. So clickety-clack, clack, clickety-clack, clack, clickety-clack, clack, clack. And uh, like all percussion instruments, uh, when the uh, bones aren't being played, the music uh, can flow freely and, and just as fine. But when you have a really good percussionist under that music, it can lift up the entire uh, musical experience. And so the bones are kind of like that. And so I do kind of two types. I play backup bones, and then also for certain numbers, I'll do um, lead bones, or I'll play rhythms on top of a melody. Oh, wow. Wow. Right. You're, su you're so such cool. an educator. So cool. <laughs> you know, it, it, it kind of evolved over time. You know, I, I started out playing music just as a hobby in of itself. And uh, I, I also got a, a degree in English. I, when I was going uh, to Northern Arizona University, I studied ancient literature of different types. And that's how I got into the history of folk music. And as I started to travel around, I began to collect stories. Um, also, I did slam poetry for many years, so I also studied performance art. And so with that, I was able to sort of com combine different elements of each of those arts, uh, uh, performance poetry as well as folk song interpretation, and, and bring that uh, to a place where, uh, you know, I was able to create folk music that was exciting for people. Of course, uh, you know, coming in as a younger person, when uh, not as many young people were playing folk music uh, back in 2005, 2006, that area, uh, it, was, uh, it, was, it was a way to be able to modernize the music and create interest in a certain way that I think um, people just weren't used to at that time. Acoustic music sort of meant slow ballads at one point. And so I was trying to break past that. Um, of course, this is a time where, um, like my good friend's Old Crow Medicine Show, they had, they had started uh, presenting kind of like a, a newer hip up-tempo sort of old-time music that really caught on in the mainstream and that was sort of the years before I decided to become a professional myself and I, I saw that there was a wave that was growing around the music in that way so um, I went to an event called the Black Banjo Gathering and I saw that there was an importance to telling the stories of this different folk music so I started to incorporate a little bit more and more and and, and now it's, uh, it's been interesting to see as it's evolved, it's become its own sort of a curriculum, you know, but it was all done through the love of music, you know? Oh, wow. Um, I remember, so I lived in New York for a number of years, moving there in 2005. And I remember being blown away in Brooklyn. It was like, like it was more Old Crow, Medicine Show, uh, Ava Brothers, type of folk music mm. but being loving it and being surprised at how much it was embraced in a city like new york and everywhere you turned um that was the music from 2005 to like 2008 9 that was the big the big thing coming out of williamsburg for a little bit yeah absolutely and the the few years i was living out in the city as well i was there from about 2009 to uh 2011, I I lived in um, uh, Upper Manhattan over in Inwood, and then I oh, lived nice. in Midwood in Brooklyn for a while. 
and I got to know these folks that are, uh, they're still over in Red Hook, um, a venue called the Jalopy Theater. And um, at one point, see, I was trying to document the emergence of the new old time music movement. And uh, when I met the people that are now over at the Jalopy, they were right in the, the heart of the village and they were putting on their own folk show. And I was so blown away to find that there was a small contingency of younger people that were trying to bring some of the folk music back into the forefront. And that was around 2006. And um, as I went along, it was, it was amazing to see folk music begin to emerge and become popular again, which is something that, um, you know, uh, in folk music, we laugh about it, that it's it's a dying art form always. It's always a dying art form in folk music, you know, and people are, there's one last person left every time. So whenever there are newer people that come along, it's it's um, it, it's treated like a, a huge revelation. So it's been amazing to see things grow and, and also to see uh, the use of instrumentation, of more acoustic instrumentation, banjos and guitars and things like that being uh, in the mix more often. But yeah, New York's always been a, an epicenter for a folk music. That's true. That's true. We just got, uh, Abby just got a cool book about it at the thrift store. Uh, the, um, what's it called? It's uh, Positively 4th Street. 4th Street. It's oh, like the yeah. 60s revitalization. Yeah. Yeah. D David Hanji's book. That's a beautiful one on, um, on uh, Joan Baez and uh, Mimi Farina. Yeah. A interesting scene, you know, a lot of um, just a lot of uh, bohemian people, a lot of art people, you know, and I, I, I came I came up in an art community in Phoenix. And so I I related to a lot of those those stories. Uh, another great book um, as well um, to kind of uh, to have another dip into the the Dylan canon is Suze Rotalo's book, A Free mm -hmm. in Time, which is yeah, uh, I, I've read that one. Oh, beautiful memoir, and it's just it's beautiful to see in these uh, older generations of the '60s folk revival, just all the different, all the energy that was going going around. It kind of reminds me of what's going on now in, in the past five to six years. A lot of a lot of artists and a lot of energy that's moving about to. Uh, to try to create something new, you know, whatever that new might be, you know? Yeah. Oh man. We could talk about that type of stuff forever. I just, I'm, I'm going to throw this out there. I just got a book about Dylan, all about Dylan recording blood on the tracks. Oh. Um, so behind the scenes, I'm looking forward to that. It's, it's in the stack of many, many music books that I have to read right now. Is that, is that simple twist of fate by the way? Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic book, by the way. Uh, you're gonna love it. It's um, it it really explains a lot of uh, the broader context of um, where Dylan was coming from before and after. And I mean, very very beautiful book. Um, uh, I also um, that book was also very inspiring too when it came to uh, uh, arranging songs. And you'll find it. Dylan is a he's a bit more of a taskmaster in this sort of passive way when it comes to getting the best out of his musicians. But um, reading that was all was a very inspiring book to think of different ways to to work your arrangements and work the magic of the studio. And and Dylan did that one. Uh, and and also um, the bassist on Rose, uh, Lily Rosemary and the Jack of Hearts, mm -hmm. he would go on to animate uh, Peter Pan from for Disney. So he he uh, had a I guess Dylan liked his bass playing so much on Tangled Up and Blue and all those cuts. He wanted him to tour with him, but he had a job at, at, at Disney waiting for him. And so he decided to go with Disney. 
But that's uh, just one of the crazy stories in in, in that book. Oh, oh man, that's that's wild. Um, it's gonna move up in the into the rotation a little bit. And I I have to say I got it from there's this one bookstore in Louisville, Louisville, Kentucky that we support called Surface Noise. Um, uh, if you're ever there, go check them out. And Bonnie Prince Billy, I guess, goes there all the time, lives right around the corner. So um, we love them. Brett, thank you for sending the book. <laughs> awesome. uh, I can't wait to read it. Yeah, and I'll have to go and visit that some visit there sometime. Yeah. Next time you're out that way, we'll we'll we'll, we'll remind you. Um, so growing up, did you use the front door, the side door, or the back door? Oh, well, um, it's interesting. The house that I grew up in was a house that was owned by my um, my grandparents' uh, in-laws. And they used the side door of the house, um, which was um, how those houses in Phoenix are set up, is that the front door would be uh, through the gate and through the side entrance. And then the side door would be on the... Um, on what would be the front of the house facing the street because a lot of the entrances in those days were going around through the garage and then you would go through the garage into the front door. And so we used the we used what would have been the side door, but that it was the front door facing the street. <laughs> I know that's kind of a complex answer, but uh, but yeah, we used the the we used the front door, but it was the side door for them. Oh, that's, I, I'm learning more and more that no one, used, like, depending on where you grew up, you, no one used the front door. No, no. Why, no, why would you do that, you know? <laughs> I, I don't think I ever used the front door growing up. Abby, did you? Always, unless I was coming home, like, in the car with my parents and we went in through the garage. Yeah. But we only had a front door and a back door. We didn't have a side door. We had carport, so we always went to the carport door. No, Garage no. was too fancy. Front door, and then sliding glass door in the back. <laughs> oh, latchkey kids! Oh, uh, those Phoenix homes. Did you did you have the like stucco wall around the yard? Well, the, we had a partial a partial uh, a stucco in the back of in back in back and. When I was coming up, see, there are a lot of oleanders in the alleyways and a lot of phoenix. And so back then, the oleanders grew quite large when I was growing up, and then they kind of died out over time. So it's, uh, we had a half stucco wall, and um, the two houses uh, were uh, my, again, my grandparents and my mom grew up next door from the house where I grew up. And so on my mom's side, uh, uh, her her mother's family we're I'm sixth generation from her mother's family in Phoenix um and so this this house had a special significance because these were the first two houses to integrate the neighborhood that I that I lived in so back in the 1950s my um my grandfather's brother-in-law his name was Lincoln Ragsdale and he was a civil rights pioneer and he was a mortician and what he and my grandfather Bill did is that they bought these two houses off of Thomas Road, which were the the first two houses over the district line uh, for um, in it, it, uh, Phoenix was segregated in those times. They were in the first two houses in the white section of town, right over the line, compared to the black and Mexican section. 
And uh, my grandfather was also a golfer. So the golf course that was in this black and Mexican session was the first golf course to integrate in Arizona. So this house that I grew up in had this very uh, interesting significance over generations. But when I was growing up, it was just a, a normal house uh, that, that the family lived in. But there was this, there's a lot of significance to uh, where, where we were living at that time, especially in the 50s when... Um, my uh, my grandparents moved into those houses and then my mom grew up next door to where I grew up so we had this sort of interlocked uh, stucco wall that was holding the two houses together and so um, that was that was a little bit of, of how that uh, that was set up on that plot is it is it still in the family it, it is not in the family it, it um, it's been could have been a more than a decade since uh, mm. since that that house is gone um, but I took some pictures uh, uh, of the house uh, before uh, before it went out of the family. We had this beautiful mural that uh, an old artistic friend of my parents had, uh, had painted on the back. It had a bunch of cocopelles and, uh, you know, howling coyotes and stuff like that on the back that he had painted for us. And yeah, it was a beautiful upbringing. Oh, fascinating. I don't know if you get this a lot. I, I could listen to you talk forever. Can you just come over and like read us some books? And <laughs> <laughs> I'll get I'll get my scripts over and 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 we'll we'll, get, we'll work on it. Oh, your 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 child is lucky. I bet you get some you know good good stories at night. And oh yeah, well not to mention know, the music. Well, I mean she's she's uh, definitely gained my gift for gab. So if I can get a word in, I'll tell her a story or two. But we'll see. She's 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 got a she's she's uh, got a few words to say herself a lot of the times. Oh, I love it! I love it. <laughs> um okay every time like after you tell these wonderful beautiful stories i look at my paper and the next question is like the dumbest question ever but here we go this is the this the podcast so do you do you have a junk drawer in your home oh a junk drawer i have tried my best not to have a junk drawer uh, but that has evolved into a storage unit and that's okay. a <laughs> so uh, I guess uh, if I was to, well, like my priority when I'm usually moving is I'll keep a, a queue of books in the house. And then my priority is really having my LPs in place so that I can access those because I, I just hate the idea of the LPs being in some place I can't access them. So and, and also my CD collection uh, over the years has gotten so big that it, it needs to be in a storage unit because it's um, now that you can digitize I'm not one of those guys that likes to get rid of the CDs because you know I don't know when you start to digitize your CDs and then you go back and you find that there are skips in the tracks and things like that those are the worst for me and if you can't go back to your physical product it's it's awful so I, I keep those in storage as well as the overflow of books um, they're between uh, books I've bought and books that I've gotten from friends, and of, of course I'm getting to that age now where older collector friends of mine will um, will glean their collections and want to kind of downsize. So I I'll take, you know, I'm still a glutton for punishment. I'm still at the age where I'm like, just break, just give me the books, and I'll I'll take care of them. And so, <laughs> but the, yeah, the junk drawer is a is a storage unit. That's a, <laughs> it's not all yeah. junk, but it's a it, it's one man's <laughs> treasure at least, you know. Yeah. Uh, you're, you are literally speaking our language because one, um, we both still love CDs and I still have all like mine from when I was a kid. They're in a book. I, I mm -hmm. save, 
I saved like the the yeah. um, you know the leaflets uh-huh. and but I put put all the discs in, in a in a book and then I also when people are downsizing their books they give them to me to, like their pets to find homes yeah Ryan Ryan will Ryan will find a good home for this that's right. So, Somebody put uh, a box of books in my garage last week and no one will admit to it. <laughs> oh, yeah, if you could see where I'm sitting, there's like CDs right here, books that I have to go through right there, books that I'm sending to a, a friend of mine in New York over here. Abby, my and my sister as well, they get a lot of, and my friends, I'm like, oh, this book looks like you. I'll just send it to you, you know? So constantly just... Uh, rotating books and music. How many LPs do you have? I've got, I'm, I'm around 5,000 LPs. And, and that's, um, <laughs> you know, that, that's from gleaning over the years. And so my, my 5,000 is a strong collection of stuff I'm, I'm feeling good about. Uh, you know, like, um, uh, I keep some of the classic LPs of like rock stuff around here and there, but if I can find it on CD digitally remastered, I usually will more of the common stuff. I, I don't tend to hold on to as much like I, mm-hmm. like I would when I first bought uh, albums, mm-hmm. but rare blues records and reissues like that. Uh, I've got quite a few um, and covering a, a wide spectrum of, of uh, genres and parts of the world and everything like that. You know, I, I'm known for more old-timey music of American type of music, but I have a, a wide spectrum of, of different types of music that I've that I listen to, and um, just a lot of lot of different sounds of the world, you know. And yeah, you know. And then like like all LPs, there's never an end. When you think you found all of them, now thankfully in the 21st century, people have gotten back on the bandwagon of pre- pressing more, so that the house can can get even smaller, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I, that's so. That's something with my personality. I've I've done a good job of. I can't buy. I know the minute I will, I'll go overboard. It's books now. It'll be LPs one day when you know, I hit a certain. I don't know milestone. Mm-hmm. But right now I'm like I can't do it because I know I'm going to take that plunge and buy you know buy a million. I have to ask, do you have any surprising or embarrassing LPs that you've hung on to? Like uh, Creed or um, Shania Twain or something let, like <laughs> Let me see. If, if I, okay, I, there's one that I've bought that is sort of, again, I bought it because I knew that it'd be great to have it on LP. It was um, Hammer Don't You Hurt Him by MC Hammer. I saw it for three bucks at a record store several years back, and again, I you know it's not my favorite record, and again, it's nostalgia, but I couldn't pass up getting one getting a copy for three dollars, and and so that's that's one of the the crazier items that's within my my repertoire of uh, records, but. Uh, you know, I've got other ones that, um, like I have ones that are signed by different artists. So after a certain point, when I knew I was going to be running into somebody, I'd have them sign a record. Like one of my wow. prized possessions is um, a record I um, got signed by Odetta, you know. So I got her first record, and when I opened for her in 2007 with the Chocolate Drops, um, I got her to sign it. Um, I've got uh, quite a few that are like that, too, going from... Uh, Tom Rush and David Brownberg and um, 
Uh, gosh, who else do I have in there? Um, uh, I also have quite a few 78 collectors, so um, uh, friends of mine that uh, had reissued albums over the years. If I knew it was their record or something like that, I'd get them to sign it. Like, um, There's a great collector, Pat Conti, who um, put out a series of records called The Secret Museum of Mankind. Um, and they're sort of like the very first uh, big reissues of international music. So he was a big collector of that, but I got him to sign you know, his his LP version of the Secret Museum at one point because I got to know him. And uh, yeah, just I have some a lot of them like that as well that are just, uh, they now have a sentimental value as well as a musical value, yeah. you know? Wow. Ugh. Again, I don't know how to follow this up. Have you ever shucked an oyster? <laughs> <laughs> you know, funny enough, I have actually, you know, uh, in, in, in North Carolina in washington dc i've shucked oysters in seattle as well as in portland as well i'm a big fan of oysters and over the years i've i've gotten a chance to go to a lot of wonderful events where um oysters were the main dish uh, particularly in dc i used to go to this um event called the oyster riot that was that would go on over at um over uh, at the hamilton over at the old ebbett grill and uh, it was just I mean, oysters for as far as the eye could see in that place. And so you, you could try out your 20 different types of oysters from different parts of the, the coast. And I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of oysters. So yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, Actually, cool. You know, funny enough, I'll, I'll mention something. I have an old friend who's, um, his, he hasn't, his health hasn't been so well recently. And um, one of the reasons that I got to know him, he came to a gig when I was out over at Cape Cod. And he was a um, an ex uh, navigator, uh, so he used to have a, the big submarine suit. He was um, a naval reserve guy, and and he was so kind. He loved the show so much that he brought me and the band I was playing with out to the farthest point on the Cape. And because he had a license to go out there, he brought us out to the to the end of the entire United States on the Cape, and we shucked we we grabbed oysters right from the Cape. And then we got to go back to his house and shuck them all afternoon and uh, and just had a big time with it. And um, now he's starting to get a bit older, so it's um, he's, he's starting to not remember as much now. But the last time I saw him, I, got, I reminded him of that beautiful time. So that's also a, another moment. Because um, for many years, he and his wife, uh, whenever I'd play this gig over in the Cape, he would they would always come with a bucket of oysters that they'd pull out from the Cape, and so we'd have that in the green room with us. So that was always something that was really special that he would do. But yeah, yeah, the, got me got me reeling through the years now. Oh, I I love it. I feel like I could ask you any silly, just out of the blue question, and you will have not only like a a story or a like a yes answer. You'll you'll have a sentimental one at that. So we'll keep going and see where this goes. Um, Oh, two things I wanted to ask. Uh, Have you ever been to Busboys and Poets in D.C.? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. I like that place a lot. I've performed there uh, half a dozen times. Oh, nice. Yeah, that place is great. Yeah, I love it. uh, (laughs) That's a, yeah, great place in D.C., and then I wanted to ask you, when are you going to put out, you, you obviously need to put out a book, <laughs> maybe many, because you have the stories and you have the voice. So is that something you want to do? Yeah, that's something I've, I've thought about. You know, I, I've, I'm feeling in the past couple of years that 
that I have enough story to, to warrant a full book. You know, the, the hardest thing I found, uh, because I've, I've been so fortunate with a lot of the way that my, my long, strange journey in music has, uh, has, has began and how it's continued, I wasn't sure when I would find a milestone, but I'm starting to feel like I'm getting to that spot where um, I, I've, I've hit a certain milestone where I feel like I have a, a part of my story to tell. I don't think it's the end of the story, but I do think there's um, there are a lot of there are a lot of pieces that I can now talk about a bit more often, and and I could put it in a in a tangible form like a book. Um, one of the hard things about a book, though, is that um, it it has to be readable, and so when I when I think about the a book, it's really intimidated me because I I have to think about well how am I going to weave in all the stories that are interwoven into themselves uh, within my life you know and so that 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 that's been intimidating for me just because um, you know some life rarely uh, uh, rarely moves on a linear plane when you're when you're living it so um, writing sometimes. Uh, is a moment for me to reflect and to kind of unscrabble everything and then put it into some form that um, that can be uh, <laughs> that could be understood by others you know <laughs> at least in a book form you know and so it's um I, i've been thinking about it a lot recently that's when a, where a good editor comes in <laughs> um or i would su suggest just off of this tape recorder and uh, someone to conversate with because you got it you got it. And then you'll worry about putting it together later. You have the tales. Um, do you work out? You know, funny enough, over the past couple of years, I have had to work out. You know, I've um, traveling for so many years. I'm not the poster child for working out. So I'll just say it that way. Um, just from the very beginning, working out, going to gyms, those type of things have just never been my flavor. But I... I well, over the years, I found that I've I'd had a lot of um, you know trauma in my body just from having traveled uh, about a million miles. I'd say since 2005, you know, I'd and after a certain point, I started getting into Yin Yoga over the past couple of years, just because I'm kind of a tall guy and and just being able to do those slow stretches has turned into. Um, it, it's turned into something that's become a daily practice for me. It wasn't something that I started out with, and even getting into it, I, I uh, well, my wife is a is a wonderful support. You mentioned that editor as well. My wife is my editor, and she does uh, she makes sure that a lot of the messaging that goes out is is completely coherent and tangible, <laughs> tangible before we send it out uh, through our channels. Um, but she suggested trying out yoga and I at first I said give me something where I don't have to do a bunch because I don't want to try to do all this pretzeling type of stuff right off the bat and um, we found a nice little program that that got me started and so so that's that's where I've been recently this has been sort of maybe about two two and a half years I've I've been doing um, uh, yoga and it's been it's been it's been nice it's really helped out especially with a lot of the the um, the body trauma, especially from playing a lot of musical instruments and whatnot, it um, it's allowed my body to calm down in a way that um, uh, it wasn't impossible, but it was close to impossible. Yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, I hear you. Uh, working out does not agree with me. I try to do it, but the I've Abby's heard this a million times. Uh, whenever I do work out, the only thing I'm thinking about is stopping. So, like, when is this done? you know and uh 
music of course and podcasts help but other than that I, I i don't know how people just go to like la fitness and work out that to me is bananas <laughs> I, I treat it like clocking into into a job you can't mm -hmm. you know i i can't i you know like my wife she likes to do jogging and stuff like that mm -hmm. because she enjoys it but me i gotta clock into work and clock out of work like i'm like all right 20 mm -hmm. minutes of this walking and now it's, you know and when you do it that way then it's a then it becomes another it just becomes a job instead of a, mm. giving yourself a choice because um yeah like i said i'm not the poster child for working out but uh if i was given a choice i probably wouldn't but if i force myself into a small job of doing it it, it, it again it tricks my mind into doing it yeah <laughs> yeah you know? I recently heard on another podcast about um, it's called the happiness jar yeah. and it's these things that, you know, bring you happiness, but aren't the most fun. And you start writing them down. The idea is to rip a piece of paper, put it in a jar. And that way you can see the quantitative efforts of, of, you know, these things like, you know, this, this is obviously not one of them but working out you know you know you're going to feel better afterwards but it's the act of doing it you know yeah. uh when the dishes pile up and you're like i'll do it tomorrow you know that it's it, you're better off doing it tonight um and i'm probably butchering this suggestion but look it up happiness jar um do you have in your family any aunts or uncles with weird nicknames <laughs> Let me think. Um, trying to think, if we got. Uh... And I have examples because I've asked other people this. So if you need examples, let me know. Well, you know, it's it, it's a funny thing. Like my, um, in in the Black Cowboys album, there's a picture of my father as a young boy, and uh, he's out on the on the farm in Texas where his his father grew up, and he has a cousin there that um, cousin Slick was his name but my dad couldn't remember slick's real name when we did the album so we actually credited it to charles flemings with cousin slick but my dad would always talk about it everybody had two two first name initials jc um you know i don't know uh you know uh, what what have you rj and uh jr and junior and and uh you know they just had all these sort of names like that you know <laughs> yeah that's a uh, uh, that's another thing like the side door grew up i think every depending on where you lived where you grew up your family had there was always an uncle with a funk or an aunt tootie um i asked my friend today i was like did you have this because i want to make sure these are universal questions and he goes oh yeah i had an uncle pooch and i was like i'm sorry what he's like uncle pooch He's yeah. still alive. He's still kicking. Maybe we'll send him the link to this when it comes out. Uh, uh, so uh, cousin Slick, shout out to cousin Slick. Yeah, and, and also I think about my mom. She had a she has a nickname Pee Wee because she was because uh, she's um my my dad's African American, my mom's Mexican American, so she's very short. So she's one of the shorter people in her family. So they everybody from that generation and older calls her Pee Wee instead of a uh, Dorina, which is her name it's all uh, terms of endearment yeah <laughs> um okay so i was trying to think of a, a fun music question silly to stump you and <laughs> i'm I, i'm curious can you name more than one barry manilow song Ooh, let's see 
Barry Manilow. Hold on. Oh, dang. I can only name one. Um, Mandy. <laughs> yeah, dang it. Because <laughs> uh, I was... I, I was gonna be like Sweet Caroline, but that's Neil Diamond. That's not. That's not Barry Manilow. Oh my gosh. Um, whoo! Wow. This is a, this is a fun game to ask people. Wow. Like I, again, I pride myself on knowing, and I didn't cheat. I could have looked up, looked this up, but I'm he's. Well, it, yeah, you know, and it's like when you collect records, you see enough of his records, you'd think I'd remember at least one song off of the millions of records next to the Andy Williams. Um, but <laughs> I, can't, I, I don't think I could I don't think I could name a second Barry Manilow song right off the bat. I think that's about all I could think of, you know, Abby, have you looked it up? OK, give us a couple other famous ones. Yeah, make us feel dumb. I, now. Are they <laughs> um, can't smile without you? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Even now. Um, I got nothing on that one. No. No. A, a lot. Well, I mean, a lot of them are covers too. Like he did yeah. Copacabana. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, it never rains in Southern California. No. I did. This is this is the list in <laughs> in Google order. I don't know. <laughs> you, you you stumped me on that one. That's that's a rarity. That's a rarity yeah. you me on that one. But yeah, no, Barry Manilow. I can't. I don't think I could tell you more than Mandy. Yeah. There's one called My Male Curiosity. <laughs> I'm surprised I hadn't heard that one before. <laughs> that's that's my favorite. Uh, I can't wait to listen to that after this. Oh man. Okay curiosity killed the cat you know <laughs> i can't wait till the next time you're leafing through a crate of records at a thrift store or something and you're like you're gonna feel a tinge of obligation to buy like a greatest hits barry manlow we all have, are i gotta brush up <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness um where are we at here? Okay. What's the secret to rocking a bolo tie with confidence? And I'm asking for my own personal advice. Well, one of the things to think about with the bolo tie is to think about what you're going to do with your boots and what you'll do with the pants that you're wearing. And then, of course, the shirt is also a key to it. But usually a bolo tie either has a symbol or it has like a turquoise or a gemstone. So if your boots and the lining on the outside of the boots, you usually want the, it to match, even though turquoise is kind of universal. But you want to have something that's going to accentuate the bolo and then kind of, you know, show the shoulders off. And then I tend to use, uh, I tend to have my pants over the boot. Some people do the pants in the boot, and that's also a, a stylistic choice as well. If you want to show off the whole fringe um, compared to showing off just the bottom of the boot. So that that's, um, that's a big piece of it. But you kind of want to get your lining of your boot to match up with the, the bolo tie in some type of way. Like I have one um, that actually that I inherited from my, my dad, and it's the... It's the uh, the Native American uh, warrior on top of the horse, the Trail of Tears statue. Mm. Like, it's like the whole statue there. So since that one's like a pewter one, you know, I can have a universal boot. So I have a, like a yellow ostrich toe boot that I'll, I'll wear with that one. And since I wear it over the top, 
you just see the you get to see the ostrich toe sticking out. I have another boot that has kind of a wing tip so that when you cover it up, you just see sort of the wing tip until you pull it up and it has an orange fringe on it. But that's kind of the way that that I would I'd handle a bolo or based on the hat you're wearing as well. Like, you know, with this type of hat I could wear the str- a big string tie one with a small bolo. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so that that's just based on preference there. Mhm. Uh, I have a cool I have one and I've only worn it once in the last uh, four years. And it's, it's, you know, it's about the size, like two quarters, maybe two or three quarters. And uh, it has a wolf on it oh, or nice. a coyote. I like to think it's a coyote, but uh, um, I also don't get to go places a lot where I can rock it to where it's a, uh, it's a statement, you know? Yeah. What kind of boots are you wearing right now? If you are at all. Well, my my normal uh, casual boot that I wear is an Ariat boot, but I have a um, I have like the model of Ariat boot that's not the cowboy the boot version at the moment. It's like more looks like more looks more like a Timberland or something like mm-hmm. that. So uh, you know, uh, I I really like the the feel of this particular boot for casual walking around and stuff like that. But they also have their own cowboy style boot that they do they're they're a great company but yeah i got my ariats on right now oh cool i'm just taking i'm just stealing style tips here that's all i'm doing uh <laughs> next episode yeah. of bothering the band you're gonna you're gonna be having uh, a cool and everything oh i would love it um and okay do you need coffee in the morning or can you get up just fine <laughs> you see what i did there yeah <laughs> <laughs> I I will mention that uh, I I like having a cup of coffee in the morning, and I will say that the the song is artistic license just to kind of show the the power of not needing a cup of coffee in the morning. But I I, I like a cup of coffee nowadays. <laughs> uh, I I love taking the the dumb questions tailored to a song or an album. Um, how do you take your coffee? <clears throat> Well, nowadays, well, it's been interesting. It's evolved over time. I didn't start drinking coffee till I was about 26 years old, though. So, I, so that's also there's a truth to it that I, I, I never required coffee until, uh, well, until my body said you, you, you need a little something to get up in the morning. Uh, and so, uh, uh, you know, my coffee nowadays, I, I've been, I've been obsessed with having oat milk in my coffee recently to just not have as much dairy going on. Um, so I'll have an oat milk for a while. I was having a coconut, coconut, uh, water in my coffee mm-hmm. for a bit to kind of thin it out. Um, let me see. Those, those are probably the two main ways I'd, I'd take it. I, I don't really like much sugar in the coffee. Um, just never have, uh, but, uh, but oat milk has been a nice way to kind of smooth the coffee, uh, flavor out in a way that kind of, uh, it's a different, it's a different experience. I was, yeah, yeah. I like oat milk. I tried it out randomly once and I said, all right, oat milk, eh? You know? <laughs> um, so lemons or limes? Ooh, let's see. I'm ashamed of this question. Based on based on how how would I be taking these lemons and limes? Hey, this is your interpretation. There are no rules in bothering the band. Well, you know, with uh, there are a couple of things I think about. If I if I'm making a if I'm making a juice, a cold pressed juice, I would use limes because I have a, a particular juice that's carrots, apple, lime, and um, 
and turmeric that I like to make. Um, but if I'm if I'm making something a little bit smaller, uh, I like to make wellness shots with lemons. So it's with lemons, turmeric, uh, cayenne, and ginger. So I, I I I probably would take both. But if I was left with just one, I would take limes. Nice. Do you know who Trey Burt is? Oh sure, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've, I've heard of him. I haven't met him personally, but I, I've I've heard of him. Yeah. So ever he was on the podcast. Great. He's a fantastic musician. Very funny. Very very sweet. And he introduced me to putting kai, a little bit of cayenne in in tea. Ah, yeah. And I've been doing it ever since. At night, I'll have a cup of you know decaf or non caffeinated tea, and I'll just a little shout out to Trey Burt uh, for you know, my dollar store cayenne. <laughs> right on, right on. <laughs> try, try it in your tea as well. Um, where Have you ever ridden a horse? Oh, yes, yes. It's, uh, it's, it's been a while, but yeah, I've, I've ridden a horse a couple of different times uh, out in Arizona. Mm-hmm. Okay. Abby, when's the last time you rode a horse? 1995. Oh, really? I would have, I would have gambled like last year. I, it would seem likely, but no, actually I have not been on a horse since I moved here. Wow. Abby's in Wyoming. Um, lots of horses, just moose. Um, (laughs) I did ride a moose last week though. Oh yeah. That's what you did. Okay. (laughs) Um, okay. A couple more questions. Uh, what's your favorite river? Ooh, my favorite river. Hmm. You know, the, the last one I'd been to recently was, um, was the, the Verde river actually, uh, just, uh, over in, um, in, uh, Camp Verde over between Northern and, uh, kind of middle Southern, uh, Mexico, uh, uh, I mean, Northern and Southern Arizona, which is, uh, right between Phoenix and Flagstaff. Mm-hmm. And so I was, I was there recently and, uh, and that was, that was pretty nice to be over there. The Fox, the Fox river over here in, uh, in Illinois is also a nice a nice river to go to, so I've been enjoying that one as well. Mm-hmm. I love rivers. Uh, I've always had a. It started. It's kind of a joke, but not really a joke. Um, I've always said like I love three things, and it's like music, rivers, and cookies. Those I I don't know why there's something about it. If you're ever in Wyoming, Abby will take you to the Snake River. Oh yeah, I've been over there before. Yeah. I, or I've been to the I the I think it's the Idaho part of of the Snake River. I mean, the, mm-hmm. I mean, what huge gorge valleys. I mean, it's it's like, uh, I mean, it was it was quite startling to see how how vast uh, a river landscape could be. I mean, um, yeah, that's that's mm-hmm. I, I, well, I'd still like to get out there though because I haven't been to the Wyoming piece of it. Uh, yeah, that that'd be a beautiful thing. We're spoiled for sure. Yes. Um, whenever I'm there, I, I come from the East coast flat or, or New York city, Florida or New York. And when, when I've been, I've been to Wyoming a few times and I constantly, I'm just blown away uh, that that is the earth. Like, that, like this is insane. And then like, right when I landed last time, we're driving out of the airport and she goes, Oh, there's, seven moose right there by the airport i'm like this is wild to me um okay funny enough i had a a funny moment in wyoming myself i was at a i was playing out in gillette wyoming at a place called the rock pile museum and as i was walking out of the hotel before the show in the morning 
I saw um, I saw deer and antelope uh, grazing and running around together. And I thought it was like a mother deer and its child running around because they were dancing right next to each other. And so the you know I said, well, what is the, what what are they doing over there? And the guy was like, oh, well, that's the deer and the antelope grazing and dancing with each other. And I said, oh my gosh, you know, after having sung uh, Home on the Range for many years, it was actually seeing the deer and the antelope playing in the in right outside the hotel. And I, I again, you when you when you hear songs, you think they're more like symbolic or words of words of, and phrases and whatnot. But to see the actual deer and antelope playing, that was something beautiful that I that I got to see out in Wyoming the last time I was out there, you know. I immediately so cool. started singing it in my head. Mm -hmm. oh. You know, not because again, when you when you interpret old songs, you can only you can you can project your feelings based off of the 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 images and the things that you've seen in your life, you know. And and again, Home on the Range is such an iconic song. Just to to finally have that image in my head. Oh, that's that's what they look like, you know. And it was just a real beautiful thing to see them just. Because they literally just almost like they attach to each other and, and they spring around, you know, really something. It's very cool. I want to see that. <laughs> you have alligators and iguanas. And they're always playing together. Um, <laughs> uh, do you have any tattoos? No, I don't have any tattoos. Oh, okay. Cool. Um, I think it's either, I think it's cool if you have no tattoos or a ton of tattoos. I think it's, I have a friend of mine that has one and I, I always give him the business about it. And it's not a flatter, it's not a cool or flattering <laughs> tattoo. It is, I'll just tell you what it is. It's a flaming uh, yin yang tattoo uh -huh. that he definitely got underage in the 90s. And this, the Florida sun has since cooked it. And so it's real bad. <laughs> like, man. You need to cut that off. Um, so as a music historian and very knowledgeable, how do you feel about the current state of pop music, music and the internet, just the whole, you know, the whole kit and caboodle of modern music? Wow. That's that. Oh, see, now we're getting into the deep here. Okay. Yeah. Well, oh, you know, I'd, I'd say that generally I feel good about what I'm seeing from music in general and the you know and there are a lot more artists there's a lot more music going out there there are a lot more ways to make music and to disseminate it out in the world i think those are all very good things um i you know i i'm always uh, suggesting that more people play some traditional music you know so that we can have more interpreters i wish people would also play a lot of uh, reinterpreting a lot of the source material and finding um uh, Finding more songs that are outside of the normal the normal ten greatest hits that um, that tend to get you know rehashed again and again, um, and those are the sort of things I think about. But I think that there's there are a lot of great musicians that are out there in the world. I think that there's a lot of hope, and I think there's a lot of energy going out there in the general scheme of things. I mean, I'm even thinking about. Um, I didn't go to the Grammys this year. I, it, it didn't work out for me since they had to change the location and everything. But um, I was uh, I was featured on a Grammy-nominated album from Tyler Childers, Long Violent History. And one of the things that really made that album so beautiful for me personally was that Tyler, again, he's, he's a very well-loved country artist. 
and he's making his ways uh, in the ranks, going up and up, he decides to do an old-timey record. And what was even be more beautiful was um, uh, Jesse Wells, who um, is his uh, main musical director. He and I have been friends for years, and Tyler personally asked me to be a part of the recording session. And so I was, I, I, I don't want to say hoping, because it, it was still a beautiful session, but I kind of thought I was going to be doing more of what I had heard Tyler doing before, which is his own sort of unique brand of, of country music. And the fact that he wanted to do fiddle tunes and wanted to do an uber traditional sound for a good deal of that record, uh, along with uh, presenting a long violent history as a very powerful sentiment as well, I thought that was very unique uh, for a modern record. And it gave me a lot of hope. It, it showed me that no matter how far in progressive or traditional circles people go, there's always going to be moments where the music is going to find its way back to the root. And so when I did that session, it was a, a great confirmation because the the band that they brought together was a quite an all-star band of old-timey musicians. And it was a, being in the midst of the pandemic, it was also the first moment all of us individually had had a chance to get together and jam. So it was really had a lot of energy. And again, um, on a major label, no less, and, and a recent record that had come out and it's presenting music that had in one form or another been presented for the first time a hundred years previous in 1922 and 1923 with some of the early um, uh, old time music connected to Kentucky. There's funny enough, there's a group called uh, uh, Taylor's Kentucky Boys, which are in a quintessential early group instead of Tyler's, uh, but Taylor's Kentucky Boys. And it was one of the first mixed race sessions. It was from 1923, and they featured one African-American musician within a group of, of all-white musicians, um, all from Kentucky. And to be able to, to step into that role as the one African-American musician within this session as well, it just it brought it together in a, in a full circle in a way that I hadn't expected. And so in, in a certain way, I feel very um, confident, and I feel very um, excited about what's... Um, What's coming in the future? You know, even the the implementation of uh, more technology has allowed younger people to be able to uh, study and listen to the music in ways that are different than traditionally. Uh, uh, a lot of this music it, it's different than the way a lot of a lot of folks that are collectors from the the earlier days before streaming might have viewed music. You know, so all of a sudden, obscure artists now can have a have a foothold amongst a new generation of people in ways that people hadn't expected before. Um, a lot of stuff had been sort of on a trajectory that had been set forth by, um, you know, the genre itself, you know, whatever it might be. And so just to see new pathways opening, that's something that really excites me about the future. And because when you open those pathways, it's, um, you know, it creates opportunities for people to do things we can't even imagine, you know, whatever it might be, whether it's progressive or traditional or what have you. Wow. Magical. And I, I couldn't agree, right? I couldn't agree with you more. Um, there's, we could go another hour just on that snippet alone. Um, that's incredible. And there was something I was going to say, oh, there's not a week that goes by that I don't listen to Georgia uh, drumbeat. So thank you. That oh. song, I have these, you know, we all do have these songs. That song, if I'm going to go like do 
you know, some perform or anything, that song is, is going to be one of the 10 songs I'm playing before I have to do a work meeting, do a podcast, something. So oh, I love that, love that song. Well, I'm so glad that you enjoyed that one there. That one has such an interesting history in of itself, too. Um, I got to work with a, a nonprofit organization called Music Maker Relief Foundation, and they're out of Hillsboro, North Carolina. And one of their legacy artists was James Davis, who did the original version of Georgia Drumbeat, which um, is actually just is a name that that got added to uh, what is just a series of riffs and jams that that um, James Davis would do. And he was from uh, Kathleen, Georgia, which is right outside of Atlanta a little bit. And um, what he did was he grew up with the fife and drum music of his father and his uncles. And he translated that fife and drum music onto the electric guitar. So when you hear James Davis, it you're translating two drums and a fife with you know a small flute turning that into electric guitar and drums and then when i decided to interpret it i decided to make it an acoustic song again and then in the course of um me picking it i i kind of got this sort of interesting surf type of vibe out of the out of the riff and i i wanted to emphasize that in the song and then when we were cutting the actual track itself i wanted to get a little extra flavor on it um just because i love instrumental cuts and so i've been i've in the past decade i've been spending a lot of time focusing at, at least two or three songs to instrumental cuts on every record because it's just uh, i love booker t and the mgs and all types yeah. of or the ventures or any type of instrumental music and i hope one day there can be another instrumental hit well, hopefully from me but you know still <laughs> the, the notion is there but georgia drumbeat is sort of a song that i wanted to get that vibe and and then Guy Davis provided that wonderful electric harmonica. And then uh, Brian Horton uh, provided the wonderful soprano saxophone. And it was wonderful getting to hear those two instruments mixed together on that. So I, I hope one day, hopefully it'll be like the theme show to a theme show to like a, I don't know, a, a crime drama or some type of thing Ooh. like that. You know, that's why that's what I was thinking of when I when I cut the record. I was like, man, if someone would make this the theme song to their show, it, that'd be awesome. And so you've you've uh, you've met my sentiment and and it's a beautiful thing that it, it helps amp you up you know that's a beautiful thing because yeah that's what i was trying to go with uh, especially prospect hill is a is a record mm -hmm. to amp people up you know um 2014 there was so much complacency in the world that album was meant to amp people up so that they would get passionate about whatever they were doing and get back yeah. get back on their feet you know Oh goodness, Abby, that's that that's exactly what I wanted him to do when I just mentioned the song. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. Don Don, um, tell the not that you need to at all, uh, tell the folks where to find you, what's and what's next for for you. Um, you know, I'm sure you have a ton of stuff going on. So whatever you want to share. Well, the best way people, I think, could, can find more information about me is going to my website, theamericansongster.com, and that's the that's the information center for everything I'm up to. Um, let me think. I think uh, I, I've just finished cutting a new record, so you should be hearing about that in the next year. So I've uh, started making my way into the studio again, and, and I'm putting together some new songs that people haven't heard before, for the most part. 
a lot of original numbers, but uh, also traditional numbers that are of, uh, that are interesting, obscure, deep cuts in, in the uh, in the canon. And uh, yeah, I'll just uh, I'm I'm starting to get back on the road again, starting to tour, starting to play shows, and and continuing to um, uh, spread the word, whether it be in the uh, the speaking to folks uh, like this interview here, or writing uh, different uh, essays and different uh, different uh, uh, academic articles about uh, music, which I've been doing a lot recently. It's uh, I'm just keeping them rolling, you know. Oh man, that's incredible. I, we can't thank you enough. Um, we're going to, we're going to cut, we're going to cut the podcast here, but don't go anywhere. Cause I do have a, one other question off air. Um, everyone, ladies and gentlemen, um, the one and only, I don't even know how to, how to outro this episode. It's not going to do justice. Mr. Dom Flemons. Yay. Thank you.